0: This is part one of a special Ryan Russillo podcast focusing on the late great Muhammad Ali with the author of the most recent Ali book, Jonathan Ige. And we're going to do part one with Sugar Ray Leonard. First meeting Muhammad Ali. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action right now. You can check out the new and improved quick bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. Ease So, start planning your next getaway and find your Perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.
0: The book is Ali, a life, a biography, and it's incredible. And the author, Jonathan Igg, joins us on the podcast. We're going to kind of do an Ali-specific pod here. So, let's start at the beginning, just like the book does. His family's two generations removed from slavery— We know there's some history that none of us really knew about. Even he didn't know about, about his own grandparents. He has a father who's abusive, but talented. They weren't a destitute family by any means, uh, in their neighborhood in Louisville. It was, it was a family that was probably doing better than some others. But I think the the foundation of who Ali became as a person, how did he develop this kind of unapologetic personality, this non-compromising personality at such a young age?
2: That's really one of the central questions to understanding Ali. And I think it, it goes to understanding American history. You know, when I interviewed Dick Gregory for this book, he said to me, Your book's not going to be worth a damn if you can't explain what made a kid from the Jim Crow South, same age as Emmett Till, think that he could talk back to white people and get away with it, think that he could call himself the greatest when everybody around him was telling him he was a second class citizen. You got to be able to understand that. What made Ali capable of that? And it's a really difficult question. I mean, it's really complicated part of it is that he grows up in not the deep south louisville thinks of itself as more progressive there are some opportunities um that wouldn't be available to him anywhere else um for example to to walk into a boxing gym at age 12 and to have a white cop offer to help him and to be able to get in the ring and mix it up with with white kids that didn't happen in alabama or mississippi but it did happen in louisville and so all of these subtle things, um, and the fact that his his father was really uh, you know a fighter, um, not in the boxing sense, but just somebody who didn't think that we should have to take the uh, the conditions that we were born into because of this racist country that that uh, that we live in. So Ali has all of these influences swirling around him, and then he and then he finds out about the Nation of Islam uh, at, when he's uh, when he's 13, 14 years old, and that really has a huge impact too. So you can't put it on any one thing, but it's it's so complicated that I, it's beautiful, really. I
0: have always thought in, in going back and, you know, starting whatever readings, going all the way back to high school, um, that no matter who you were, even if you're having a hard time as a white person today in the country being like, all right, why are, why are we talking about race every single day? All right. And, you know, maybe there's a point. But. If you're Muhammad Ali at that time, Cassius Clay, and you go to Rome, win the gold medal, you're treated like a hero, and then you come back home and you're like, wait, like I'm gonna get treated like shit again? And then the first time you pick up any literature on the nation of Islam, and you start hearing for the first time in your life, black people talking about other black people in a positive way and asking questions, how impressionable Ali must have been at that time. Like anybody that would go, I can't believe he went nation to Islam. I can't believe he has these beliefs. I can't believe he went down that road. I don't know why anybody could be dismissive, at least of the idea of a young person at that time, looking at his surroundings, asking a lot of questions and wondering why things were the way they were.
2: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And remember what it felt like to be 18 and to want to challenge authority every chance you got and to, to go over there, win the gold medal.
0: Cassius Clay has presented the coveted gold medal for his tremendous victory in the light heavyweight division
3: of the Olympic Boxing Championships, a magnificent conclusion to the 1960
2: Rome Olympics. Come back, be treated like a second-class citizen, and hear Elijah Muhammad and hear Malcolm X saying, we don't have to do it the way they want us to. We don't even have to do it the way Martin Luther King wants us to. We can fight on our own terms. And and that really appeals, I think, also to the the same um, sense that makes Ali love boxing. You know, w- we can do it on our own. We don't have to be a part of a team. We don't have to play by anybody's rules. We can make our own rules. I think that's really attractive to an 18-year-old championship boxer who's African-American at a time when, uh, you know, Jim Crow laws are still in effect all over the South.
0: So let's get deeper into it then. So. He's got this group of businessmen that invest in him from Louisville. And it sounds like they fast tracked him. What I love in this book, too, is every time Angelo Dundee, his longtime trainer, is mentioned, it, it's almost like Dundee's right all the time. Like he's just right about everything, like all the time. Yeah. And they wanted him fighting Sonny List in there. And it felt like they
2: were rushing this because no one really thought he was that good, right? Absolutely. You know, Ali thinks he's that good. Ali thinks he's ready, but Dundee's job is to make sure he doesn't, you know, blow it too soon by putting him in the ring with somebody he can't beat. Because then, you know, your your career is over, and uh, you you go you go back to the uh, you know to the B League. And 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 uh, Dundee is is really you know holding the reins and trying to keep this this guy in check a little bit. Um, But Ali, you know, thinks he's thinks he can beat anybody, even Sonny Liston, who, who nobody thinks they can beat, and and. You know, in that way, Dundee is the perfect um, trainer for, for Ali because he's he's able to just appreciate this kid's um, ego and work with it without letting his own ego get stepped on at all.
1: I don't have a mark on my face, yeah. and I upset Sonny listen, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. Right. I am the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, hold I'm it. I'm pretty. Hold it, you're not that pretty. I'm slightly. a bad man. Wait, wait. I shook up the world.
0: So he beats Liston the first time, and now what did you get to see? Like, I have my own opinion on it here, but the Nation of Islam understood that if we're attaching ourselves to now this famous boxer who has a real high ceiling here, how did you see the motivations behind that relationship, um, not from Ali, Ali's side, but from the Nation?
2: It's messy. You know, they they really kept their distance from him. Um because they thought he was going to lose to Liston in that first fight, so why? Right, they told everybody like don't go
0: down. Or did they tell Malcolm X yeah, to Malcolm leave? went down
2: anyway because Malcolm, by that point, was on the outs with Elijah Muhammad and was doing whatever he wanted. But Elijah Muhammad told the newspaper, his newspaper, uh, Muhammad speaks, not to cover the fight, not to pay any attention to Ali because we don't pay attention to sports. It's it's not serious. It has nothing to do with religion. And he's going to lose anyway. So why would we want to advertise the fact that this loser is a Muslim? And then he wins and, and everything <laughs> changes. And and suddenly, Elijah Muhammad, you know, A, sees dollar signs. This kid's going to sell newspapers. He's going to bring in rec- new recruits. He's going to be a voice bigger than Elijah Muhammad, bigger than Malcolm X's voice. He's going to have outreach to the world. So now, um, suddenly, Elijah Muhammad sees a huge opportunity here with and, and has to make sure that that he doesn't let uh, Malcolm X get in the way, so um, this becomes a real serious battle, one of the really difficult conflicts in all his life. You know, does he go with Malcolm or does he go with Elijah? And why do you think he went with Elijah? I think he was in awe and a little bit scared of Elijah Muhammad. Um, you know, he, he was he thought of him as a god almost, as a, certainly as a prophet, and that um, you know he, he was fascinated by this, this tiny little man with his squeaky little voice. Um, had so much power and spoke to God, and um, it was. But he loved Malcolm too. I think. I think in a way he was probably afraid of what would happen if he if he broke with Elijah Muhammad, and then he saw what happened to Malcolm um, soon after. Malcolm was assassinated, and most people felt like um, the Nation of Islam had had some direct role to play in that, and uh, that seemed to confirm all of Ali's fears.
0: The second list and fight
1: for the heavyweight championship of the world. Introducing from Denver, Colorado, the former heavyweight champion, and now the challenger, Sonny Liston. His opponent, from Louisville, Kentucky, the heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali.
0: Is there more than what you were able to share in the book on just theories of, of what happened to this, this guy that was so feared and look, he loses the first one, but the second one is the one everybody is like, okay, that was, that was messed up. And did somebody bet, did his own guys bet against him? What were you able to uncover in that, which so many people have said is a dive, although I've seen Ali break down the film of it.
3: From the time the punch started
1: to the where it landed, it was four one hundredths of a second, which is an eye blink, like a camera flash. That's four hundredths of a second. Now, the minute I hit Sunny listen, all of those people blinked at that moment. That's why they didn't see it <laughs>
0: And if you go like frame by frame, you see this like magical punch that actually does Take him out, but it just depends. I mean, I've been hearing about it since I was a kid, so yeah, I, love that I don't know part we're ever
2: it. gonna know. I, I, there was a punch, didn't look like a knockout punch to me at all. And Sunny Liston could take a punch. Sunny Liston had, ta- you know, had taken plenty of much tougher punches than that. Um, it looks to me like he's flopping down there. You know, even the way he's rolling around on the mat just looks like bad acting. Um, so I think he he he, he threw that fight. But that's just my gut. I was never able to prove it. The best um, evidence I found was an interview that never aired—TV uh, interview with um, with Liston's wife, where she said um, he had diarrhea, and he just he just gave had no had once once he got in the ring, he was like, "I got to get this over with as fast as I can."
0: A new theory, in,
2: in- yeah, not as sexy as the uh, Nation of Islam <laughs> assassins or the uh, Mafia assassins.
0: Okay, so he wins that fight. Now, this is where the Vietnam storyline comes in. Um, you know, I know the first time through, I was confused. I was like, well, what happened? You know, my father would explain it to me. You know, he was in college at the time. Um, he was somebody that started in athletics. And by the time he was done in college, he was just a guy going to, going to different war protests. You know, not that he, he just, that was kind of how I always learned about Ali. It was through my father. And he would just be like, no, you got to understand. Like, even though there were so many people that hated him, there was a younger generation of people that were also white that that looked at him as like, hey, this guy is a hero because we share his his vision or his voice on on the war and an unpopular war as, as time went by. Um, at first, he failed right his his entry and then was reclassified, which he kind of used. But then those that would say, OK, he was this complete draft dodging coward. He was offered the idea of just doing these boxing exhibitions where he was never actually going to have to fight. And now maybe he didn't necessarily believe that, but I think he could have. And there was a case I think you make in the book where he had, he had thought, maybe I just go ahead and do that because in, in this case, I'm going to lose my career. I could end up in jail. I could have all of these fines. So help me sift through all of that. I know I threw a lot at you, Jonathan, so I apologize, <laughs> but I'm just kind of trying to share the timeline with younger listeners that may not know the details.
2: No, it's really in some ways the most Important moment in Ali's life, you know, he has to decide what he really believes in and um, You know, he's he's the heavyweight champion He's got millions of dollars in, in money-making opportunities lined up endorsements from all kinds of big products not to mention the fights that are that are coming in and He's got to make a choice, you know, how much does he really believe in this religion that he's only been, you know, um, publicly uh, associated with for for a couple of years and um, it and, and at first, he you know, it's interesting because at first he says, well, I just don't want to fight, you know, like send somebody else there. I got no problem with the war, but I, I just don't let somebody else fight it. And then he starts to say, well, it is screwed up. You know, why are all these black people being sent over there to fight um, when you, you, we're not even allowed to vote here in this country in a lot of places? Um, why should they take these us like second class citizens over here and then expect us to go over to Asia and kill some, some other dark skinned people? And then it's evolving, and this is, I think, a normal human process. It's evolving. And then he starts to say, it's also against my religion. Um, you know, we're not, my religion teaches us that we don't fight in in secular wars. So that's ultimately um, what, he, what he goes to court on, and he's convicted. He's sentenced to, to jail, and he doesn't know that it's only going to be for three years, three and a half years. He thinks that it's permanent. He's never going to fight again, and he's willing to take that step. He says, I'll face a firing squad before I'll go against Elijah Muhammad and disobey the rules of my religion. That's faith. That's, you know, that's commitment. There's no other, there's no other way to explain it. Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States armed forces. How scared
0: was he Were those around him as as they were trying to go through that three, almost four year stretch where he's not fighting and he doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't have any money. And I, I still felt like that's where the nation of Islam, I mean, that, the relationship is so complicated throughout his entire life. Where I think they were paying for some of it. Herbert Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, had started to become involved, um, who obviously plays a big role in the management part of him at that time. You still have this Louisville group that is trying to figure out like what to do, the boxing side of it. Like how is he how is he figuring out where any of that's going to go. Um, And then ultimately towards the comeback, which kind of happens the way you write about it. I was like, oh, this was sort of like, hey, can we get him licensed anywhere? And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess we could do it here. And it's like, well, what the hell was the holdup the whole time? Which I (laughs) thought was a a part that I don't know that I'd ever picked up on before.
2: Yeah, it's messy and it's crazy. Um, I spent a lot of time with Ali's wife at the time, um, Khalila. Who you know was sixteen when she married him, and so that's his second wife, right? Second wife, right? And she was with him when when he was banned from boxing, and when he was home with nothing to do all day, and when she had to go out and make money to uh, to feed the family, and and she would uh, he would drive her to, to to work every day, and and then he would just basically you know sit around the house, or then he'd go out on some college tours and, and give lectures, and and I got the impression that you know, he was frustrated that, he, you know, he, he missed boxing, but he still loved being Muhammad Ali. He loved um, just getting attention any way he could. So the, the the college tours, the Broadway show he acted in, anything like that, that he could do just to have eyeballs on him, um, made up for it. And, 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 but there was never any doubt that like, um, that he would make a deal. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, he had an offer from the government just to do some exhibitions and you know, the way Joe Lewis and a lot of other um, athletes did, you know, they don't have to fight and and, and they're never going to see a battlefield. They just have to put on a little show for the, for the troops, but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't compromise at all.
0: This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate, hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like you should gain season, throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in, available in your choice of ranch barbecue and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add on. To your meal food buddies arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations visit an arby's near you or order ahead on the arby's app so he finishes with zorro foley at 29 and oh he's 25 years old that's 1967 and then the band kicks in he doesn't fight again until he's 28 almost 29 years old jerry Quarry, um oscar bonavina and then he comes back to fight joe frazier which is, we're, we're not even six months since the comeback. And I remember Dundee saying, Hey, you could tell the time off. He's just a different guy. He's older. He was bigger. His legs, though, which I love that, they were like the lugs, already we could tell, even not even at 30, the legs are a little different. I didn't know this. And I remember reading Tyson's book where he was very revealing. I don't know if you read the Sloan Tyson book where. I mean, that gets weird. Like I knew Tyson was kind of a mess at times, but like when he was in Japan, he would just start having sex with housekeepers who were kind of like, what's going on? And then he would just keep saying, he's admitting all this in the book, that he would give them money and then they'd come back with like more housekeepers. And he was like, it didn't matter how old they were, what the deal was. He's like, that's how messed up I was. Ali was a fan of the females, but what can you tell us about the story, the day of the, this is his, First fight against Fraser, he's twenty, what, uh, thirty-one to zero at this point, and yet he's screwing around.
2: Yeah, he had um, <laughs> you know, real issues with this, and and it was all his life. Um, you know, he he he. I think that he he loved attention so much, and he loved pleasing people that he saw this as like his mission in life was to was just to have sex with as many people as he could. And and one of the one of his friends told me this story where they. They went to a hotel room um, in LA, and there was there were you know ten beautiful women in the lobby waiting for Ali, and they were all you know giving him you know handing him his number, and he gets they go upstairs and they check in their bags, and the, the his pal goes downstairs um, to talk to some of the girls, and comes back up, and Ali's in bed with the chambermaid with the with the cleaning lady from the from the hotel room, and he says Ali, there's there's ten like Playboy models down in the in the lobby. Why are you making love to this woman? And uh, Ali looks up and says, "Well, she's going to appreciate it more, and she's never going to forget this." And, like that's that's Ali. Like it's just it, it was just you can't explain the guy. And and you and and you could argue that maybe you know fighter right before big fight has nerves and and having having sex is a way to like distract himself or you know ease some of the pressure. I don't think Ali even thought about it. I was just like. I think it was just, if it's available, he's, he's ready. Well, I mean, here, here we are, the Frazier fight. He's still
0: probably not ready. Dundee didn't want to do it. He's like, we need a few more fights. And this is something that would happen later in his career. The rapid nature with his scheduling was ridiculous, which leads to some of the other stuff that we're going to get to. But his wife is with someone else, like with some of the entourage in another room. She's like, where's Ali? Where's Ali? She calls into to the other room. A woman answers. She marches down there, barges in, grabs a steak knife, and it was a woman Ali had found off the street and paid $40. And we're talking hours before he has to be at the arena fight Joe Frazier for the first fight. In yeah. the Ken Norton fight, he ends up with like two women hours before that fight. And you just reading it going, I mean, I guess you've already answered it, but it was just another one of those deals where I didn't need a ton of reminders how different I was from Muhammad Ali. But I, you know, that was that was part of it as well. Uh, Let's stay on the Frazier thing, though, because this is another part of the book that doesn't do Ali any favors. We all know that Ali would argue, hey, I'm promoting the fight. I'm promoting the fight. I'm going to call people out. I'm going to be nasty to be at all these different things. But when Ali wasn't boxing, Frazier was his friend. And Frazier, you have this incredible moment in the book where Frazier's driving him around. Ali's kind of joking about, hey, can I come work for you? I need a hundred bucks and all this kind of stuff. And then as soon as the fight is on,
3: it's going to be a thriller and a chiller and a killer when I get the gorilla in Manila.
0: All the derogatory terms, the nastiness where Frazier was like, what, like Frazier took it so personally. But the way Ali treated him, it's hard to just say, "Hey, Ali was simply doing it for interest." Because it got so nasty, and really, kind of, the way he called out Frazier is kind of unacceptable.
3: Well, number one, he's too ugly to be the world heavyweight
1: champion. Joe Frazier, Joe Frazier, is so ugly, his face should be donated to the Bureau of Wildlife. Man's too slow. Man's too ugly. Man can't think. He's a geechee. Hey, Joe Frazier.
2: Yeah, and I think that you could say I was just putting on a show to sell tickets, but um, when you're calling somebody an Uncle Tom, um that 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 goes deep, especially when you're somebody like Frazier, who's poor, who's from the, you know, from a sharecropping family. Um, you know. That that hurts, and you start calling somebody a gorilla using these racist terms. Um, you, you can't take that back. You can't just uh, wipe it away and say, "Oh, he was just selling tickets." And and it really hurt Frazier. And Frazier thought they were friends. You know, um, why would you do this to me when you know that you and I were friends? Um, and and I don't think there's any way to explain it or forgive it. I think that you know Ali had a dark side, and one of his friends said to me you know psychoanalyzing said i think it's cuz ali felt insecure that he was a middle class black kid you know he he came from a family that had you know a car and he had a brand new bike and they had a dog um he went to summer camp um you know and 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 he felt like he lacked the street cred that fraser and norton and some of these other guys had um and that as a result of that he 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 compensated By calling them Uncle Toms because he was afraid that he'd be the one who was called, you know, bourgeois, middle class black guy.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it because I I don't know that I don't know that I've ever heard it described that way. Uh, I think the turn for him, because at this point, it's probably the peak anti Ali movement because now he's lost to Frasier which I'm sure everyone that hated Ali was thrilled about. And, you know, America hates a loser. But then as you start to kind of go, all right, so how is he going to salvage his career? And I think that's the Foreman fight because everybody thought he was going to get killed. Foreman destroyed Frazier. And now we have this monstrosity of of a promotion where you're like, all right, so they're going to fight in Africa. Now Don King starts to be involved. When We Were Kings is one of my favorite sports documentaries. Give me some of the best lead up to to Ali going, no, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to fight Foreman him when no one thought he had a chance. And considering the unique kind of political situation that he was putting himself in, in a place in Africa where it was like, Hey, this is going to be for black people put on by black. And it's like, you're actually aligning yourself with one of the worst people in the world right now, by the way. Um, but go ahead. Like, like, let's, let's, let's see the fight.
2: Yeah. It's another one of those great, uh, Ali, contradictions and he's he's fighting for black pride but he's doing it on the uh, the paycheck of this one of the worst african dictators a man who literally like chops off the heads of his own people if they if they show any signs of dissent um in, in mobutu and and ali is is fine with that He'll, he, he he offered to fight in uh in uh, you know apartheid south africa if the money was right he was you know just so full of contradictions oh uh, by the way did did mobutu
0: asked to fight Ali for a half a million dollars like he wanted to actually fight Ali
2: correct I don't remember that I, I I know you know Idi Amin also like oh Idi Amin a, wanted to fight him can fight you tell him. me that story quick yeah uh, well so while they were in Africa Ali or maybe it was after the fight Ali and some of his guys flew to Uganda to meet with Idi Amin who was possibly the only dictator who was more ruthless than Mabutu <laughs> and and this time Ali actually got fr- got scared this time you know he said, "This guy's crazy. Let's get the hell out of here." <laughs> um, and I uh, guess I mean wanted I mean wanted to get in the ring with him. Um, and and Ali said, "No way. Like if I beat him, I I could be killed. If I if I don't beat him, I, I could be killed." I get let's let's just let's run, basically like head for the door.
0: All right. So he he beats Foreman, and there's two great stories out of this. We we've all heard the different versions of events on Foreman. Um, you know the Don King part of it's hilarious. I'm going to ask you a Don King question, but you know, Foreman was always worried about water, right? He was worried about water. I mean, there's another crazy part where Foreman gets cut that delays the fight. We knew that part, but uh, Mobutu had taken away everybody's passports. So Foreman wanted to get stitches somewhere like in, in Europe. And they were like, no, cause then he's not going to come back. Like you guys are staying here almost like the fighters and the camps and the entourage and everybody were prisoners of the country because he didn't want to lose this promotion. Um, and Foreman says in the book, and I'm going to ask him about this, that he felt like he had been drugged. He He's careful because he doesn't almost want to diminish Ali's victory. But there's clearly part of Foreman where he he feels like something was taken from him that night.
2: Yeah, Foreman's a mess. Like he's carrying this around with him he knows that to be politically correct, he has to say Ali was the greatest fighter of all time. And he loves Ali. But you know, I found this with everybody who faced Ali and including everybody who, who lost to him. They're bitter. Like nobody likes to lose. these, these men are warriors and, and when they lose, they're angry about it. They can go, come back and say, Oh yeah, he's a great guy. He's my hero, but they're still pissed that they lost. And Foreman's really, I think deep down still angry. and and, He told me this story about believing that, you know, his own trainer drugged him before the fight, that, you know, the water had something in it. And as soon as he drank it, he felt funny. And I said, so you really still believe that you were drugged before that fight? He says, I don't believe it. I know it. And this is, you know, 50 years later, he's still carrying that around. Um, and, and, And he still puts on a good show and says, well, Ali was the greatest, but he believes he was drugged before that fight to this day.
0: Yeah, he says in the book, and I'm gonna like I said, I'll ask him. he's just sluggish. He goes, I just felt a little sluggish. Another part that was hilarious was that, and we'll we'll tie this into the Don King part of it because there was a contract that then Foreman's manager would help with Don King to promote some of the fights. But one of the other realizations that you have to just understand, especially about the boxing world back then, is wasn't there a complaint from one corner about the other corner paying off the ref? And then Ali's corner was like, well, that's bullshit. We paid him the same. You did only 20 grand. We didn't pay him 50. So that essentially both corners had paid 20 grand to prevent there being in any unfairness. Was that was that basically how it broke down? I mean, that was kind of the quote that I love. I was just reading.
2: Yeah, that was that killed me. Foreman said something like, well, we gave the uh, we gave the refs, you know, 5000 bucks to make sure that they wouldn't, uh, you know do anything crazy like you know sometimes foreman would, would hit somebody while they were on the way down just you know out of, out of adrenaline and he says we gave him five thousand bucks just to make sure that he, it would be a fair fight and and then foreman said but i found out later that uh that ali gave the ref ten thousand dollars and i called gene kilroy and i told him that story and gene said that's ridiculous that's the stupidest thing i ever heard we only gave him five <laughs> God, I
0: love that. All right. The reason I'm bringing up the Don King thing is I've never read anything about him and gone, oh, he seems cool. Um, I'm sorry. I mean, it's just, it's, <laughs> it. I read Jack Newfeld's Only in America, The Life and Crimes of Don King. Um, Don King, prior to the Rumble in the Jungle against Foreman, which is going, how can I work my way in here? How can I figure this out? But you still have the Herbert Muhammad part of it. Um, Don King. Positions himself as, as the savior and is nothing more than a thief because all he would do, and like a lot of promoters, he would rip them off, but he had something over Ali that was smart. It would work is that a, a boxer can have a million dollar contract, but if he sees $50,000 in cash, he's going to take the bag of cash. And it felt like this is the combination of Herbert Muhammad and Don King when you look at the percentages. This is why towards the end, like a lot of boxers, Ali had financial problems, but it was absurd when you really break down to the numbers what these guys were doing to him.
2: Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And, and you know, I'm I, not to defend Don King, but everybody in the business was, was crooked and greedy, almost everybody. And um, Don told me this story. He said, when he first met Ali, Ali came over to his house and King had a draw full of cash, just you know thousands of dollars in cash. And he said to Ali... And um, this is their introduction. This is like how he's he's um, indoctrinating him. He says, um, you can stick your hand in the drawer of cash, but it's like the crane game in the bar. You know, you yeah. get to go down once, you get to clamp your hand around the cash once, and whatever you pull up, you get to keep. One time, that's it. You only get one time. And he said, now, if you were smart, um, you know, you'd look around and you'd see where the rolled up bills were, but nobody's smart. They're all greedy and they're all just thinking about how they can get their hand around as much uh, as, as, as much as they can and they, they panic and they get excited and, and, and he gets, he lit up telling this story and Ali was, you know, I let him do it three times when he, every time he came to my house and the same thing happened every time. He never learned how <laughs> to do it because these guys are, gre- are greedy and, and that, you know, the, the point of the story is that cash is king and king is cash and, and he would rip people off all the time, by you know, offering them the cash instead of you know a better deal on the, uh, the. Nobody wants to wait for a check, and you know he took that as like a measure of his of his black savvy pride. You know, like he comes from the street, he knows how people think, and that's how he knows. That's why he he's able to do business with these folks.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not like he's the only promoter that was ripping everybody off. It's just not a lot of the other promoters have a murder. And then we're able to bribe a judge to like get I mean the the backstory on the Newfeld stuff with King is I mean it's just tough. I mean you it's crazy. read it. Yeah. yeah, you just go, this is absurd. And that's why only in America is a perfect title for that. All right. Um let's finish up here because towards the end. I always kind of thought, like, look, those last three fights, three of the last three losses, like Whenever I think of his losses, I go Ken Norton's second loss, broken jaw. Frazier probably shouldn't have fought him at that point, so you could erase those. I'm not saying erase those, but like how absurd the record could actually be: fifty six and five, the career record. But as you point out, like he should have lost to Jimmy Young in the decision. The Ken Norton won there. I think the like at that point they were just giving Ali decisions, and. Sometimes I felt like it was positioned as Ali didn't really want to fight, but he did want to fight. Everybody around him wanted to fight. So they were all kind of complicit the same way where Ali, when he would make terrible business deals, it still, even though I, I get mad on his behalf about how people were ripping him off. He also was the guy signing all these ridiculous contracts when people were constantly trying to help him and saying, hey, let's get your affairs in order, and he couldn't help himself. So I thought those two parallels were the exact same thing where financially he couldn't ever stop saying yes to people, but as a boxer, he couldn't ever stop saying yes, not just to the paycheck, but going out there, and that's where you know the Holmes fights a joke. I mean, look, you thought he was done at 36 years old, 35 years old. He came back and fought at almost 40 years against Trevor Burbick. In what was it um that was was that the Bahamas yeah, and like Nassau. nobody, yeah, yeah, nobody was even there it, it sounded like the wrestler, it reminded me like Mickey Rooney in a wrestler scene in that movie where he's he's at some weird high school gymnasium, <laughs> and it's
2: Muhammad Ali, right. It's, it's tragic. And um, yeah, he could never say no to anybody. He couldn't say no to the women. He couldn't say no to the, to the fights. He couldn't say no. It was, you know, it was easy money. Um, and in, and he, you know, it also, he didn't like training. So by scheduling a ton of fights, it forced him to at least do a little bit of training to stay in shape. Um, the fights alone would keep him in shape. Um, so some of it comes from having success so early, from being a child star and feeling like, you know, you get whatever you want in life. Um, but some of it was just baked into to who he was—that you know everything was always going to be okay, and and you know whatever I do, it's going to work out in the end. And you know usually he was right.
0: You did a lot of work on some of the punch totals, you know, and I don't think you presented it as if, hey, this is you know this is the absolute definitive total of, of punches here. But how significant were some of those numbers in understanding the toll that Ali took in the second half? and ultimately led to all of his health challenges towards the end. Yeah.
2: You know, what you see is that um, there's a great shift in the beginning of his career that before the Vietnam layoff, he's not getting hit much at all. He's out slugging his opponents. Um, he's, he's really not taking much punishment at all. And, and then by the the last third of his career, he's getting out hit dramatically and he's learning to win these fights by absorbing punishment, letting the guys get tired and then winning, um on points or um, you know coming back and winning those late rounds To to steal the fights and and that's that takes a brutal toll And and he absorbs all of this punishment not only that, but you know, you can not only count the punches which we did I worked with CompuBox to count every punch um, but you can also see how it's affecting his his cognitive abilities because We measured his speaking ability fight by fight and you can see with each fight, how it affects his, his his ability just to form words. You were counting syllables, right? Per se- it was pretty crazy how you did. Yeah, that. Yeah, it's something they do to to look for signs of Alzheimer's in, in folks. They 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 measure their speaking rate, just syllables per second. And with Ali, you could see how after these fights, even in you know at age thirty, even after the very first Fraser fight, you can see that his um, speaking ability begins to fall off, and it he loses like something like twenty six percent of his speaking uh, speed. Um, f- between age 30 and age 40, and and you really shouldn't be losing any at that age normally.
0: I heard a line as we finish up here. Um, that was a good line. It was from a few people have thrown this around, so I don't know who owns the line, but it was America only liked Ali once he couldn't talk. Hmm. And I went, I get the history, even though I can only do, you know, research on it. But I think that's such an inaccurate and dismissive line. Like it's a good line to kind of get your point across, but I think it would rule out what made him so special is that some somehow most people came around to the idea of, of getting enjoyment, enjoying who Muhammad Ali became. And maybe you were late to it, maybe you were early, but eventually I think it had way more to do with people kind of coming around to his side of thinking or seeing something in him that they never had in themselves.
2: Yeah. And I mean, there's a level of truth to that line because for some people who, who, um, maybe were hardened racists, they, they learned to love Ali when he was, when he was feeble, um, when they saw him with Parkinson's and they saw him lighting the Olympic torch, but for a whole lot of other people, black and white, Ali became a figure of pride and courage. And, you know, and, and, you know, commitment to your religion. Um, and, and, you know, when he stood up and said, you know, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I don't have to say what you want me to say. I'm free. Um, that spoke not just to black people who were at the time, um, you know, fighting for civil rights that spoke to everybody who'd ever been picked on everybody who felt like a second class citizen for whatever reason. And that's what made him a hero. Um, not the, um, not the docility that we saw late in life when when it was easy to love him. I think he was loved for the right reasons um, as well as for the, uh, the easy ones.
0: Jonathan, incredible work. I hope you have moments where you're still thinking about this book and you're proud of it. I know I can't wait. Um, you've finished a Ken Burns documentary, so why don't we give a little plug for that when that's coming out?
2: Yeah, that'll be out in mid-September, and it's a four-part, eight-hour documentary. and It's fabulous. I've seen it. It's it's really great. They've got some. They found some stuff that I didn't find, which really ticked me off a little <laughs> bit. But I'm but I'm but I'm really proud of how it turned out.
0: Well, I'm uh, I'm happy for you on that, and I can't
2: wait to see it. So thanks again. Thanks. Fun talking to you.
0: The great Sugar Ray Leonard, one of the great boxers of his generation, titles in five different weight divisions, joins us now. What's going on, man?
3: All right, how you doing, buddy?
0: I'm good. So I'm trying to get the timelines as I was matching them up last night. Uh, You're 65 now, so you were 14 years younger than Muhammad Ali. So can you take me through your first, like the first time you ever learned about him? Because I can guess, you know, you're probably 10, early teens. What was it like that first moment you were aware of him as a fighter?
3: Well, when I f- first began boxing, I was like, what, 9, 10? And number two boys club in Washington, D.C. And, uh, I mean, I, at that time, I had not really heard of Muhammad Ali. Um, and I actually, kid hit me in the nose, and I, and I quit. I quit for about three, four years before I came back. So I'm around 13, 14, uh, in Maryland. And my first guy, my first kind of like idol was Joe Frazier. I used to box like Joe Frazier, and, you know, with the hook and everything. And then I watched, I saw all of a sudden I saw this guy, Muhammad Ali. And uh He would just talk trash. He backed it up. He was smooth. He was cool. And I started boxing like Muhammad Ali. Uh, Then I became a friend of his. And from then on out, I mean, he he was my idol. He was the idol for me in boxing. And in life, I should say. Also in life.
0: What was it like the first time you met him?
3: He was bigger than life. I think the first time that I really met him was that um, I was like maybe a year from the Olympics, from nineteen seventy six Olympics. I was I was nineteen years old. I vividly I vividly remember this. And they called upon me because what had happened? Someone was supposed to present an award to Muhammad Ali, but he got sick or something happened. And they said, "Well, this kid, Ray Leonard, uh, he's going to the Olympics and he's going to be the next hot stuff." And I mean, I didn't have a big name at the time. And um, I accepted doing to uh, present him with the award. So I'm sitting there at this table. And all of a sudden, who sits beside me? Muhammad Ali. I'm hyperventilating. I'm so nervous, man. I mean, the, the greatest of all time. And he just talked. he said, hey, hey, you know, he said, you, you like sex? I said, sometimes. <laughs> He said, so, how, he said, so how, how long do you wait before having sex before a fight? I said about three days. He said, you're a bad dude, man. Because it's, you know, the thing with uh, sex and, and boxing, you're supposed to stay away from it for months at a time. And it was just, I mean, it was like I was like a student and he was the professor. He was the teacher. He taught me so much. He gave me so much advice and suggestions and things of that nature. Always say, always sign your own checks, always do this. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, again, I was young and naive. I didn't know what he was talking about, but uh, he gave me the right advice.
0: Yeah. When I read in his book, I don't know he took his sex advice all that closely himself <laughs> based on some of the stuff <laughs> that we end up finding out about in the book.
3: Oh, we don't, we don't stretch it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You ended up in the Olympics, like you won gold Montreal, Um and. You know, looking at the Foreman fights in 74, so that's two two years before 76, you know, you're you starting a, I think your first amateur fight is like 72 or something like that. So what was it like? How were you following the Ali story? Because, I mean, he, he refuses induction in 66. You're, what, like 11 years old, 10, 11 years old. Were you paying attention to that kind of stuff? Because it's amazing to think just, you know, 10 years later, now this guy's your friend.
3: Right, but everyone's talking about it. You know, everyone's talking. I didn't. I didn't really know what was going on, what was taking place, how significant it was. But they was talking about Muhammad. Well, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and um, I, I just. I don't know. You know, it, it was like something very spiritual. Something happened. Something transpired. Something. Something came together, and it was us in a strange way. But it was us who came together. Because I, I was a shy guy, and I'm still a little shy, but I was extremely shy, non-confrontational, so to talk to anyone, which I spoke very little. Of, uh, Ali I felt when I met Ali when I was around Muhammad Ali, again, I didn't say much, but I, I listened to it, every word he said, and it was it was like it was like learning, you know, on the streets.
0: By the time he's fighting Foreman, I mean, are you completely in the the Ali camp? Are you worried for him? I mean, I imagine you weren't rooting for Foreman.
3: I, when I heard, when I heard he was fighting George Foreman, I cried. Because I saw how George was such a mammoth, a a big guy. And when he fought, I think he fought Joe Frazier. And the way, I mean, the the destruction of, of George Foreman is such a, Big guy, strong guy. I was so afraid. I cry. I mean, I, I again, I remember this so vividly. I cried. But when I saw the fight, I was like, yes, yes, yes.
0: Okay. So, do you remember watching the fight? Like, I mean, obviously, you said you watched it. So, I don't know. Did you watch it in real time, or were you able to see it somewhere? I know that, like, a lot of the closed circuit stuff and how it worked was kind of complicated.
3: I did. I did watch it, and live. Um, and I was just, I screamed my heart out. I mean, because he just, he did the impossible. That's what it, He did the impossible.
0: Yeah, really, it really is to be able to talk about somebody that, I mean, everybody was doubting him. I mean, and, and I can only go back and read about it and then talk to my father about it, who was like, you don't understand. Because after what Foreman did to Frazier, people were just telling Ali like you're nuts like you can't do this you can't do this and then all the circumstances all these things have changed did you ever think of well I guess at that point you you know once you become well your first professional fight is 77 correct
3: Seven, yes
0: so what's the transition like Olympic gold medalist now at this point you're kind of like America's sweetheart you know like people people are like man here comes Sugar Ray what was that time like for you
3: I, you know, I didn't want to fight. I didn't want to be a professional fighter. I, I had no intentions of being a professional fighter. So once I had that gold medal draped around my neck, heading home, uh, I was going crazy, man, because all of a sudden, once I got home, my dad went into a coma. Uh, my dad had spinal, spinal meningitis and tuberculosis and some other stuff. But he they didn't think that he would live, you know, uh, a week or so. and. Um, we had no naturally we had no money and i said how can i help the family i asked one of my mentors Jenks Morton. i said "Jenks, how do i make fast money he said turn pro i said okay i'll do that without any second considerations i said i'll turn pro in fact i was not going to turn pro i was going to go to university of maryland further my education get a good job but uh because of my father's condition health conditions Turning pro sounded good to me, and which I did. I, you know, I turned pro, and I did it for my father. I did it for my mother. I did it for my family. I did it for myself.
0: Did you ever talk with you know? Because at that stage, as you're turning pro, that's when Muhammad should have been done fighting. Yes. And then he takes those late fights. Uh, we've been over it, you know, people around him. But ultimately, like fighters, like to fight, and he certainly wanted to keep trying to find a way to get paid. What was that like as you were getting started watching him at an end that should have been ended previously?
3: I, I wasn't that sharp. I wasn't that, I mean, I was not my, I was like this, I was this one-dimensional. Um, and whatever, whatever he said to me, in fact, I said, that's the, that's what I should do. Um, he said, Ray, if you turn pro, get Angelo Dundee. He has the right complexion and the right connection and um i naturally got angelo dundee and i had james morton dave jacobs pepe carrera uh my other trainers and uh, you know i just felt having angelo dundee muhammad ali's trainer in my corner oh my god it was it was precious man it was priceless too and um it all it, it, things my career was happening now, although it's mono, mono, you know, you against me, I had a team. I had a corner, Ryan. I had a corner. I had a, I had a group of guys, a team that helped me. And I, they didn't say, Ray, do you want to fight Joe Small or Joe or Tommy Harris or whatever? I said, just guys, whoever you say, I'll do it. So my my career was one of an independent one in a sense. And um I remember also um uh, my my guy my attorney my, my partner mike my Trainer, putting together 30 people and each one of them gave me a thousand dollars and um i paid him off my first fight became an independent contractor and i did from then on out i did it myself
0: yeah that's an amazing story because you know you had this this group that had funded muhammad ali that still had a piece of him for, for going on forever and then it got switched over to kind of Herbert Muhammad and then they were doing but you paid everyone back right the loan the first loan how were you able to do that
3: my my first fight uh six rounder I got I made between 40 and 50 thousand dollars which is um, un- what uh, that's well still it's somewhat unprecedented um
0: your first fight in Maryland you made that yeah, much
3: yeah 40 for, between 40 and 50 thousand dollars which, again, was unprecedented, and I and I paid off. Well, my trainer paid off all the guys.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick time out there. We're going to have part two of Sugar Ray and a little bit on him, that Hagler fight and some other stuff, and then bringing it full circle on the health concerns for a fighter later on in their career. We're going to have part two of that. But coming up on the next episode, we're going to have author Matt Taibbi on his book, Hate, Inc., The media and why we are the way we are and recruiting stories so some bonus stuff in there including amari stoudemire jermaine o'neal uh rashid wallace potentially being at georgetown with iverson so some really good stuff out of that and life advice that's on the next episode